to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to track down the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Ho-Ho Joe. <laughs> and I'm just Ryan. And uh, uh, congratulations. You have found the Internet's best podcast for music that knows when you are sleeping. And what you're wearing. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, if you're wearing anything at all. Anyways, this is our, uh, I guess, holiday episode. We're going to talk about some favorite Christmas songs and have a Christmas-related trivia here. And we can do something a little different with Turntable Talk. But before we get to that, let's warm you up with a little bit of trivia. You know more than I know. You know more. All right, Joe, are you ready? Yes, this is, uh, everybody, this is our only trivia round of the show, and it is my fault for being lazy. Oh, it'll be all right. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the Christmas spirit. Everybody's generous and, and happy and all that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. Yeah, but. if there's anything that serious music collectors are known for, it's glee. <laughs> and generosity. Okay, so this is a, a pretty pretty simple one. Uh, this is a list of about 12 holiday records, and half of them are real, and half of them I totally made up. So all you have to do is tell me if this is a real Christmas record, or if this is something I just totally made up. Is it a full LP or just a song? It's a full LP. Okay. Are, get... uh, there's a few EPs in there, too, I guess. Okay, okay. Are you ready? Yes. All right, the first one is Guar. Harry Fistmas and Happy New Guar. That's real. That is fake. I'm sorry. Oh, man, that's a good Guar one. would never release a Christmas record. Come on, Joe. I could, All right. Oh, okay. Can you imagine the like a baby Santa coming out of that guy's mouth at the very beginning? Like a <laughs> like a like a Play-Doh factory. <laughs> Just little elves going get squished in. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities with that, really. All right. And Guar makes yet another appearance on our show. Okay, this one you should know. Flaming Lips, Christmas on Mars. Yes. Yep, that is a real thing. Conway Twitty, A Twistmas Story. I'm going to say no. That is a real, and he um, oh, man. he sang with a cartoon cartoon bird who was called Twitty Bird. Oh, okay, so it wasn't, it wasn't like... No, no, Twitty don't bird? say the other thing. No copyright infringement. Okay, so it wasn't, was it Mel Blanc doing the voice? Of course, I don't. I I have no idea. I'm sure it was just Conway Twitty speaking in a higher pitch. Okay, fair enough. It was tw- Twitty Bird. I'm sure that was pretty tor- terrible. Okay, next one. Bo Diddley, Santa Man. Man, that sure sounds good, but I'm gonna say no. Yeah, you're right. That is fake. All right. You're, you're really good at these fake songs and albums. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should have been, you know, if I was born in the 50s, I could have been a like a producer telling people what to write. Yeah. Or a hobo. Could have gone either way. All right, this one. It's a Waffle House Christmas. Yes. That is absolutely real. And I put it on just so I could read the lyrics to the Waffle House 12 Days of Christmas. Are you ready to hear what my true love gave to me at the Waffle House Christmas? All 12 days, please. Oh, yep. Here we go. 12 takeout boxes, 11 Cokes of Fizzin, 10 cups of coffee, 9 scattered smothered house browns, 
I don't know what a house brown is. Eight chicken sandwiches, seven T-bone steaks, six different omelets, five pork chops grilled, four eggs of frying, three sausage patties, two waffles bacon, and a bowl of delicious hot grits. Man, I wish you could have. I wish you would have been singing that the whole time. But that's very good. I thought about it. I just don't think I could do that with my uh, my froggy voice here. Is there a YouTube clip of that? Do you know? Oh yes. Oh okay, yes. Good, we'll good. we'll uh, we'll post it. I can't believe I didn't talk about that during the Waffle House episode. I I can't either. Oh man, could you imagine? Eleven cokes of fizzin and ten cups of coffee. It's a pretty big order. <laughs> eight eight chicken sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be a long Waffle House Christmas. <laughs> okay. Ted Nugent, the album Ted's Christmas Feast. No. You're right. That's fake. Dee Dee Ramone, Queen's Christmas. No. Also fake. Very good. Christopher Lee, Heavy Metal Christmas. Yes. Yes. Have you heard that? I know I've heard of it. I don't think I've heard it at all, though. Oh, it's pretty bad, but it's also, you know... Pretty great, too. The Burger King King, Christmas Morning with the King. Yes. No, that's fake. Oh, that's good, though. <laughs> Do you think people remember the Burger King King? I I think they will. I, I think people, listeners of this show will, and it would be nice to see, like, a face-off mano a mano with Santa coming down the chimney and the Burger <laughs> King waiting for him with, like, just going to pummel him. And the, I, I created a whole backstory for that commercial, that fake commercial I just made up for this trivia. But um, Can we hear it? It's pretty close to what you were just saying. Yeah. Okay, anyways. Bootsy Collins, Christmas is Forever. Fake. That is real. Bootsy oh, did really? do one. Yep. Wow, good one. Rocky Erickson and the Alien Aliens, Elf Boots. Fake. That is fake. Grateful Dead, Mistletoe the Line. Fake. <laughs> that is fake. But they would come up with a stupid name like that. All right, and the last one, Tales from the Crypt. Have yourself a scary little Christmas. Real. That is real. Wow, you did really good on those. Well, I don't think... I, if I got half, uh, we'll go back during the editing. I'll, I'll see how many how many I actually got, but I don't think it was more than half. I think you got half for sure. Mm-hmm. You did good. Okay. Well, It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> I'm always so bad at things you make up and me f- trying to figure out whether they're real or not. If I could see you, I would know. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Oh, not. for sure. Yeah. Okay. Usually, in any sort of competition, when we're together, you win. But when we're online, I, I have the advantage—the mental, mental advantage. You do. I can't stare into your soul. <laughs> not, not like you usually do. All right, it's time for turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind All right, for today's show, Joe and I are going to try something a little bit different. As we've spent the year researching different songs and topics, we often run across weird snippets of musical lore stories that are strange and fascinating and that we want to talk about, but they don't really necessitate a whole turntable talk. They're, they're much smaller. So these different kind of conspiracy theories or rumors, fables, oddities, or legendary encounters, they're fun. And they go far beyond the overly discussed and overwrought tales of rock and roll excess about 
Led Zeppelin sex and Ozzy Osbourne drugs and all that stuff you hear about over and over. So we want to do something a little bit different. So for our holiday special, we thought we're going to present some of these small stories about these amazing musicians and, you know, different things related to music. So if you need to call them something or something with the holiday theme, we'll call them stocking stuffers. But whatever they are, we we hope you enjoy 10 10 tales of, uh, of musical weirdness. All right, I'm going to start today with a little bit of Charles Mingus. So at one point in his career, Charles Mingus put out a guide so that you at home could train your cat to use the toilet like he trained his cat. And he had five clear steps on what to do. And I've kind of broken down just kind of the the best of those five steps here, just so you can hear some of them. Um, The best of step one would be, First, you must train your cat to use a homemade cardboard litter box if you have not already done so. Number two. Now, uh, there's a little bit in between. He he was pretty verbose. <laughs> he, he was. He did, yeah. Now, as you move the box, start moving the box. You also start cutting the brim of the box down so the sides get lower. Do this gradually. <laughs> Finally, in step two, you reach the bathroom and eventually the toilet itself. Then one day, prepare to put the box on top of the toilet. At each corner of the box, cut a little slash. You can run string around the box, through these slashes, and tie the box down to the toilet so it will not fall off. Don't bug the cat now. Don't rush him because you might throw him off. Just let him relax <laughs> and go there for a while, maybe a week or two. Meanwhile, put less and less newspaper inside the box. Step three. One day, cut a small hole in the very center of his box. Less than an apple, about the size of a plum, and leave some paper in the box around the hole. Step four. Now cut the box down completely until there is no brim left. Put the flat cardboard, which is left, under the lid of the toilet seat and pray. Don't be surprised if you hear the toilet flush in the middle of the night. A cat can learn how to do it, spurred on by his instinct to cover up. Also, be sure to turn the toilet paper around so that it won't roll down easily if the cat paws it. Good luck. Charles Mingus. I remember a story, maybe ran across this, about Charles Mingus's recipe for eggnog. <laughs> so he goes through this step, it's, you know, 10 eggs, cr- crack the eggs, and then you mix in a little bit of cream, heavy whipping cream, some nutmeg and cinnamon, and you get a bottle of bourbon, and you pour up a shot of bourbon, and you pour up, a, you know, a cup of, of eggnog, and then you pour out the eggnog and drink the bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> He's a pretty amazing guy. Right, I'm going to talk about the moon pix hallucinations now. So, in the fall of 97, indie songstress and my uh, pretend college girlfriend, Sean Marshall, who you may better know as Cat Power, pretty much had, just, had decided to quit music. She was already kind of a, a, a nutty, I guess you could say. She had a lot of anxiety and troubles performing and stuff like that. And so she had moved to a town somewhat ironically named Prosperity, South Carolina, and rented a small remote farmhouse with her then-boyfriend, Bill Callahan, who goes by Smog. Anyways, they're living together, but he um, he was out. And apparently she'd gone and traveled the world before this incident. She'd, she'd gone to Africa and just had some pretty harrowing experiences, you know, hanging out with kids who had their parents killed, just, just horrible things that really psychologically damaged her. And she was already, you know, had a lot of stuff going on. So this had pretty much just let, left her me- mentally exhausted and she just didn't want to play music anymore. So one night when she was staying alone at the farmhouse, she 
apparently had this crazy hallucinatory nightmare that would basically change her career forever, though she didn't know it at the time. So this is how she described it. One morning I had a vision. I woke up and I could feel something beyond the trees outside my window. Then I heard a voice. Sean, come and meet me outside and all the past will be forgotten. I remember sitting up in bed saying no. And when I said that, I felt as if something was coming fast, straight from under the earth, these dark spirits. I know that sounds completely insane. So I sprung out of bed, rushed into every room, and I closed the windows. And then I came. Then they came, thousands of them, all up against the kitchen window. They were clear, black as night, trying to get into my soul. So I grabbed my acoustic guitar, and I thought if people found my body, I needed to leave this tape. So basically that night, she grabbed her cat and started uh, grabbed her guitar, started praying, and in a blind panic, she recorded most of the songs that would later go on to Moon Picks, like six or seven of those songs she recorded in one night. After the incident, she'd go to New York basically looking for help, and this included speaking to a priest about the incident, but she... She nothing nothing helped her. She was still just totally freaked out. So she actually went back to Carolina. When she got back there, she'd heard that a friend died, and apparently that night she decided that she, or she needed to keep moving. So she got her record label Matador to fly her to Australia, where she basically hung out for a month, drank with Will Oldham, and eventually recorded Moon Picks uh, with Mick Turner and Jim White of the Dirty Three. And it's one of my favorite records. It's just certainly my favorite by her. It's just this great kind of moody, stark, brilliant album. But it's so weird to know that these dark, nightmarish circumstances led to her making this album basically in one night. If you listen to it again with that perspective, it really changes how you hear it. So I thought that was a really interesting story. It's my favorite album of hers too. It's uh, Whenever you hear it, even before I knew that story, it was like you were listening inside of her head, listening to her kind of talk to you. It's just really wonderful. I didn't know anything about her hanging out with Will Oldham there, though yep. I did know like they were both using Mick Turner and Jim White around that time, or he was at least for the that... Uh, for a couple a couple singles like the come in come in jump in jump in i think and maybe some other things but i didn't realize that that uh that they were doing that yeah apparently um she started hanging out with him and going out drinking and she said she kind of really loved how southern he was cause she missed it missed the south and he was from the south and, and the, one of the songs i forget what it is where she talks about the funny little bear that's that's about will Oldham, apparently My next one is something that I think we touched on almost near the beginning of the podcast when we started, and this is about Joe Strummer running a marathon in 1982. Right as The Clash were about to release Combat Rock, which ended up being their biggest album ever, their ticket sales for shows were really not very good at the time, and I think that Joe Strummer was kind of stressed out about it and wasn't doing very well just in general, mentally maybe. And their manager told him that he should just sort of disappear. And he suggested he go down to Texas where he would hang, where he could hang out with his pal Joe Ely, which I didn't even know that they were pals, but there's a lot more to that story too. So Joe Stummer thought, yeah, that's a good idea, except what he did instead was he just disappeared. He took a plane to Paris and didn't tell anybody, and he ran a marathon in Paris, the third marathon he's ever run, allegedly. There's actually one instant where it's 
he absolutely ran a marathon. I think it was in in the late 70s. Um, there was one in like 78 and then 80 and then 82. And one of them was actually sponsored. He, he really did it for sure. But the other ones, the early one and then this one in Paris, there are pictures of him like after the race and there's no like number or anything on him, no bib of any kind. But he says that he just kind of jumped in and started running it. And when he was asked about what kind of training he had for this one, he, he said, I drank 10 beers the night before and I hadn't run in four weeks. <laughs> so, and he did it in like about four hours, apparently. There's no way to track it because he wasn't actually a registered runner. It is something that we mentioned along when I was talking many, many episodes ago about the song Trash City. I, I mentioned it briefly. And then when I looked more into it, um, it's a pretty funny story that... I think is probably true. He was in good enough shape to do it. Yeah. And the I didn't even know the Joe Ely stuff. He and The Clash were actually really good friends. Joe Ely's band, after the Flatlanders, would open up for The Clash, and when they were touring Texas, they would go out drinking, and when he came to London, they would all go out partying, and apparently they got along really, really well. And Joe Ely sounds like an incredibly cool guy. Huh. That's strange that um, you've got two stories that kind of relate to him. I know. Yeah, it is weird. I probably should save this one for later, but I think that might be my favorite favorite story. I'm going to talk about John Cale and the chicken. <laughs> John Cale and the chicken. That's going to be the title of this episode. <laughs> On April 24th, 77, a cleaver-wielding John Cale decapitated a chicken on stage and threw the parts into a crowd of shocked punks. So this is just to give you a little reference. It's about five years before Ozzy would become notorious for biting a head off a live chicken, which or a live bat, which he happened to do accidentally. How do you do that accidentally? So basically, Oz, somebody threw a bat on stage and he thought it was a plastic bat and bit it off, but it turned out to be a live bat. Okay. So I didn't, I think, I think that's, I didn't look into that. So anyways... <laughs> John Cale apparently for some reason bought a new cleaver in Germany, <laughs> which gave him this idea. And so this is a couple long paragraphs. It's from his, uh, his autobiography, but I, I just have to read it because I, I think him explaining it is so much better. One day on the tour, we were driving back to London. I said to the tour manager, I want to get a live chicken. I told him to stop at a farmhouse and buy a chicken, put it in a box that nobody, in the be- nobody else in the band would know. However, he came out of the farmhouse holding squawking chicken by its legs. All the way back to the Portobello Hotel, everybody in the band was asking, what's he going to do with that fucking chicken? He's not going to hurt it, right? (laughs) The gig was at Crowden. I had the chicken killed backstage, and I put it on a wooden platter with a handle. I told the roadie, when I get to the second verse of Heartbreak Hotel, slide it out to me on the platter. I already had the cleaver, meat cleaver, stashed on stage. The guys in the front were slam dancing, bopping and swaying. All those punks with their leather and their change, pushing everybody because they had all taken too much speed. So I thought, try a little voodoo. I am singing, we could be so lonely, swinging the chicken around by its feet, nobody in the audience knowing it was dead. We could be so fuck. I decapitated it and threw the body into the slam dancers at the front of the stage. And I threw the head past them. It landed in somebody's pims. Everybody looked totally disgusted. The bass player was about to vomit, and all the musicians moved away from me. Even the slam dancers stopped in mid-slam. It was the most effective showstopper I ever came up with. (laughs) 
<laughs> so apparently he had two vegetarian band members, the drummer and the bass player, and they quit immediately. They walked off stage. <laughs> so legend has it that the song Chicken Shit from the Animal Justice EP was written for the, for those deserting bandmates. I think what I love most about this story is that is all the context you will ever have about it. He bought a cleaver. He wanted to, he bought a chicken. Specifically bought a new cleaver. He did, in Germany. He bought a new cleaver, because he had one that he didn't bring to Germany with him, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Don't know. Yeah. But, like, I don't know why this story is just so great, but, like, there's no context. He had a cleaver. He thought of an idea. He got this chicken, and he half his band quit, and he didn't care. He just wrote a song about it. I think the context is cocaine. <laughs> probably, probably. For what it's worth, Kale has since expressed some regret about his foul play. Then she signed on to her knees, grasped the cutter by both handles, took a deep breath, and plunged the long blade through the middle of the package, through the masking tape, through the cardboard, through the cushioning, and right through the center of Waldo Jeffers' head, which split slightly and caused little rhythmic arcs of red gently in the morning sun. My next story is about the legendary Stardust Cowboy, who we talked about briefly when we were going through our glam episode, but more about him didn't really didn't really fit in in any way. The legendary Star- Stardust Cowboy takes himself incredibly seriously as a legitimate artist, and, and he has that song, Paralyzed, and if you haven't heard Paralyzed, it's just him uh, shouting and whooping and hollering, and it's um, it's amazing. It's really, really cool. And he actually had a hit with it. It got up to just in the top 200, so not much of a hit. But for him, it's the first thing that, that he had a hit with. And that was in 1968. He grew up in Lubbock, Texas, and went to school with Joe Ely, which is weird. And Joe Ely talks about a legendary Stardust Cowboy, whose name is Norman, that he would get to school really early every day, and he would start playing his guitar and just playing and playing and people would come by some people would gather whether they were just sort of gawking or actually enjoying it but people would throw like clods of dirt at him and pieces of candy and people would be trying to throw coins into his guitar and norman the cow legendary stardust cowboy uh complained that the principal kept taking his guitar away he had an obsession with space travel and westerns and how he got that's how he got his name and he spray painted on his on his mom's car NASA presents the legendary Stardust Cowboy when he was in high school and he drove around town all over in it and he just kept driving it after from Lubbock he decided after seeing Tiny Tim on the Tonight Show that that's what he wanted to do he wanted to be on the Tonight Show so he sent Tiny Tim a letter Tiny Tim didn't respond uh, he decided to drive out from Lubbock to New York which is where the Tonight Show was at that point he got as far as Fort Worth and that's when he ran into two traveling vacuum salesmen who were from Fort Worth, and they saw his car, and he was out playing guitar on the side on a corner just trying to get some money, and they said, you need to come with us. They took him back to their office building, which is right next door to a recording studio. So they put him, they take him into the recording studio, and they tell the guy who's sitting there who looks really hungover, young guy, whose name is T-Bone Burnett. He's 20 years old in 1968 and they say you've got to listen to this guy you've got to record him so he just t-bone burnett does and legendary stardust cowboy asks t-bone burnett to play drums on this song and he recorded paralyzed which 
it became a big song. Um, after he recorded it, T-Bone Burnett ran upstairs with the tape. There was a radio station upstairs. The guy um, at the DJ loved it and just started playing it immediately. And it was a, it was a hit there, a regional hit. That song is one of the only songs, if not the only song, that was ever banned by NASA. In the early days of the space program, there was a tradition where at the very beginning of the day, a song would be played from Houston or wherever they were for the astronauts and kind of get them going. And one time, some guy brought in a 45 of Paralyzed. Everybody loved it. They wanted him to play it every day. From then on, he was just playing it every day. And eventually, they had to stop because they ended up performing poorly and they were agitated all day after that. So they banned it from being played ever for any astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> it made them bad astronauts? It made them bad astronauts. Yeah. Wow. Uh, there are a lot of good legendary Stardust Cowboys stories. Uh, that's that's the one I kind of like the most. And that it had both Joe Ely and T-Bone Burnett. And T-Bone Burnett will make another, make, make another appearance in another one of these. And it's all just totally coincidental. Yeah, that's really cool. I took a trip in a Jiminy spacecraft. And I thought about you. It's serendipitous because my next story kind of has to do with, with space. This one's called Beatles from Space. In 76, Capitol Records dropped a strange record on the planet. The record was a, a mystery wrapped in an enigma. No band member names, no photos, no songwriting credit, virtually no information at all, save the band name, written in large, tan, kind of psychedelic font, um, over a smiling sun surrounded by adoring forest creatures and these mushrooms bending towards the illumination. And that band was called Klaatu. The record got decent reviews, even some good comparisons to Bowie. You know, it was a Bowie-esque concept album, but it made no money, no waves at all with sales. Until February of 77, when a young Rhode Island tastemaker, Steve Smith unleashed an article in the Providence Journal called, Could Klaatu Be the Beatles? Mystery is a magical tour. And so this guy from Rhode Island basically found the record on a stack of records, listened to it, and said, gosh, that sounds a lot like the Beatles. And he thought it was the sound and the harmony was beyond Beatle-influenced that he thinks it was it was a Beatle-induced sound. He said the dr backbeat drumming was so Ringo-like, and the guy sounded exactly like Paul, and it was a very ringy George guitar. And so he also thought that uh, there was a recent Ringo solo album that he thought was a clue. Um, the album was Goodnight Vienna, and Ringo basically is reenacting a scene from the 1951 film The Day the Earth Stood Still, where he's dressed as the Clot Two character, uh, waving peacefully to the people of Earth next to the giant robot. Um, you probably know the scene from the uh, from the movie or or the LP cover. So, anyways, adding fuel to the fire, there's there's nothing on this band. Capital claimed they didn't know anything about them. They just kind of released it because they had a deal with Daffodil Records from Canada. Rupert Perry from Daffodil Records, who signed the band, said he didn't really know much about them anything. He'd heard a couple songs, and the band wanted to be completely unknown. They didn't want to do interviews. They didn't want to do live shows. They didn't want a bio released. He kind of liked the shtick, and so he signed them, despite them having such adversity to publicity. So... Basically, the journal the journalists started asking the label man if they were the Beatles. 
And Rupert Perry, even though he was pretty sure they were not the Beatles, gave him kind of a mealy mouth, no, and refused to expand any further. So um, the published story um, got people interested in it. And there was some local interest in the band that they saw just from the story. Then Capitol went ahead and said, we should go ahead and send that story worldwide. And that gambit paid off, at least financially. Sales of the record just exploded. And everybody thought this was either a Beatles reunion album, or it was made by maybe one or two of the Beatles, or maybe they backed it or financed it. The Beatles were were on this record. It got played on the radio, and it got so big that record plants were forced to go into emergency mode because they couldn't keep up with the supply of people wanting this, this puzzling LP. The band were just three Canadian guys who love music. When they recorded their the album, they still had their day jobs. So once they'd kind of heard about the Klaatu rumor, you know, they, they kind of laughed it off and they noticed that, hey, we're getting way, way more money and we're getting much more play and fame overnight. So they kind of had a dilemma whether they should let this lie kind of keep uh, <laughs> elevating them or if they should, you know, quash the lie. They didn't really decide to do either. They just said, well, we'll just go ahead and record a second album. The Beatles, for their part, they seemed to kind of enjoy it. Apparently, a friend of Paul said he, he, he kind of knew about the whole thing. He just kind of laughed it off. He thought it was really funny. But eventually, the non-denial denials... And they, they kind of really dug in and they had advertisements that said, like, Klaatu is Klaatu. And it just the kind of feigned anonymity just got old. Ex-girlfriends of the band members started talking and just even normal things like checking the registry of the songwriting credits, you know, eventually told everybody, OK, these are not the Beatles. They have nothing to do with the Beatles. So people got really mad about being duped. Rolling Stone awarded Klaatu its Hype of the Year award. And their next record, which many people people say is as good or maybe even better, it's a bit more mature and orchestral, but it got critically panned with everybody talking about how this is a hoax band, a scam band, and the band, even though they released a few more records, never, never got past this curse of the, the first album being a Beatle impersonation. So it's kind of a it's kind of a funny and a sad story, but the songs are are pretty good. Yeah, and Langley School uh, Kids Chorus covered uh, one of their songs on their record. So, I mean, it was really, really popular. But once... Which song was it on there? The song Calling Occupants of an Interplanetary Craft was covered by both the Carpenters and Langley School Music. I see that record all the time. It's not a hard to find record to find. It's pretty good. Sounds more like Emmett Rhodes than the Beatles to me. It sounds like somebody trying to be the Beatles more than the Beatles, but... Whatever. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. Good night, Vienna. On Apple Records and tapes. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure, Ringo. All right, my next one is about Bob Dylan and songs that never made an album. And this is about a very specific group of songs. After he recorded Blood on the Tracks, they went through the Rolling Thunder review, started going around... And in 1977, he went to this guy, one of the band members in the Rolling Thunder, Steve Souls. He went over to his place, and T-Bone Burnett was there, and he said, hey, I've got, I've got some songs I want you guys to hear. And he went through between 10 and 12 songs, the rumor goes, and the guys that heard it all said, you can't record that. You can't, or you can't release that. It's just too hateful. 
And the only song that I know the title of or that any of them remember the title of is a song called I'm Cold. These songs have never been recorded, allegedly. We don't know if maybe they're in Tulsa and we'll find out later or Columbia has them, but they've allegedly never been recorded. They are real. Bob Dylan has commented on them. He said something about he and his wife, Sarah, who they've been together for like 13 years at that point. Um, They've been breaking up for a long time and he just kind of wrote this these songs as sort of a relief just to kind of get him out of his system. And then the next album he put out was Street Legal, and nothing like that is on Street Legal at all. So it's nothing is in there. It's pretty crazy that these songs are, are kind of the things that Bob Dylan fans seem to want. Pretty, or They're pretty high. Bob Dylan fans want so many things. But these are up there pretty high. And it wasn't just T-Bone Burnett and Steve Souls who heard them. There's also, uh, there are other people who say that they heard them too, that Bob Dylan played them for them. Joan Baez says she heard them. She was on the Rolling Thunder review as well. Stephen Stills said that he heard them, that Dylan played them for him. And Lowell George mentions them in his autobiography or biography. It was a biography. He mentions hearing them as well. So it would be sure would be great if they were recorded. He had a lot of kind of cool stuff right around there. With Street Legal, there's an album of outtakes that nobody's gotten their hands on yet that's all acoustic demos from the album. And then there's these 10 to 12 songs that are all supposed to be probably a lot like Idiot Wind off of Blood on the Tracks, where it's a really kind of kind of mean stuff. And sure would be great to hear him because he's the best mean songwriter of all time. Did he do a lot of like home taping? Do you think he might just have it himself? I'm sure he had a recording studio in his house in L.A., but I don't know enough about how he was recording at the time. Other than when he had a, when he wanted to put an album out, he basically would go and do it, find some musicians, go into a studio, tell them to just sort of follow what he's doing and, and record an album. It, it'll be good for you, man. It'll be good for you. That would be good for me. They have your picture with pig written on it, you know. You know. I'm not a pig, man. I don't see how you can fucking call me a pig. Hey, you, hey come you on. Don't fight. give me that. I fucking fight, man. You fight you know, to go through, yeah, you fight, fight to go pigs, through my man. garbage, I man. Pigs. So, yeah, but like a lot of people believe that you've become a pig, man. So? Oh, and here I am, a Dylanologist. A Dylanologist pig, man. In a certain position, man, in a certain position, you know, where I can do a number on a cat, you know, who's become a pig, man, who's become a fucking sellout, you dig? Like, that's the way it goes, man. You write all these songs, some jerk is going to fucking believe him, man. Okay. You know? And he's going to get pissed off when he finds out that you didn't believe him or you don't believe him anymore. I don't believe him. You know? I'm not only, you know. Yeah, I'll see you later, man. Okay, so long. On uh, Monday? What? Monday. Yeah, Monday. All right, all right. Another uh, misunderstood genius um, <laughs> that there are seemingly hundreds and hundreds of great anecdotes about is the one and only Prince. I had a hard time picking out a few things. Some of them are just, just they're just so funny and so silly. But um, I, I just wanted to. Talk about a couple ones, a few things I found. He, Prince once fired Questlove. He is in the middle of a DJing gig at a club, and um, <laughs> Prince fired him in the middle of his set, and then in, had the club play a DVD of Finding Nemo instead. <laughs> 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 and then there's another story about how he'd wear these, you know, later in his life, he'd wear these monochromatic outfits, and whenever he wore one of them, he always had the coordinating colored Tootsie Pop <laughs> to match it. 
So he, if he wore all purple, he'd have the purple Tootsie Pop. Or if he wore all red, he'd have the red Tootsie Pop. One time, he called his manager to call a lim- the limo service to radio the limo driver in the li- limo he was riding in just to tell him to turn off the air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> and then oh. there's another time Prince agreed to have his fridge examined by a food magazine. And <laughs> the fridge contained five pounds of Dunkaroo cookies, yak milk, 18 types of mustard, and a soy milk creamer. And then they, they asked about the soy milk creamer, and he wrote, no cows were oppressed to, you know, the number two, of course, make this righteous creamy creamer, you know? It's really good in coffee or whatever. Do you think he loaded the fridge for them just as a gag? No, I think that's probably I think that's probably what he eats all the time. I don't think he did anything for anybody else. Whatever he did, he did for himself. Okay, by far the best story, my favorite story was the one I read about when Prince challenged Michael Jackson to a game of ping pong. So they were both recording at the same L.A. studio, and the Purple One invited MJ to go, to to play a game with him. Michael, who you know had kind of lived a sheltered life, apparently didn't know how to play. So Prince picked up his paddle, which I can only imagine was oversized and purple and bedazzled. <laughs> so Prince started taunting him. He said, you want me to slam it? <laughs> <laughs> and so there's this engineer there that said Prince was so mean to him that Michael dropped his paddle. <laughs> After he slammed the ball at him, Michael dropped his paddle and held up his hands in front of his face so the ball wouldn't hit him. <laughs> and so Michael walked out almost immediately with his bodyguard, and Prince started strutting around like a rooster saying, Did you see that? He played like Helen Keller. <laughs> <laughs> Prince was so great. <laughs> and that quest, uh, quest love, by the way, if anybody out there has not read his book, Moment of Blues... It is really good. He's a great writer, really, really smart guy. So read that if you ever get a chance. It's um, it's just a wonderful book. I haven't read his other books. Uh, I intend to because that one was incredible. Well, he's apparently not a, not a good enough DJ for Prince, though. Oh, man, what a great story. Well, I can't be played. Uh, a person trying to play me plays themselves. My next little blurb is going to be about Hassel. Adkins, who I always thought was, his name was Hazel Adkins. And I've listened to him in the past probably for, what, 20 or 30 years we've been talking about him. His name is pronounced Hassel Adkins, by the way. I'm sure a lot of you know about his chicken-themed songs. He's also got a trilogy of songs about decapitation with a song called We Got a Date, another song called I Need Your Head, <laughs> and the last one, No More Hot Dogs, Ha Ha, that he wrote about a date he went on where he was really broke, generally most of the time really broke, but he went on a date with this woman and she ordered a hot dog and he ended up writing a song about wanting to decapitate her and put her head up on a wall. No more hot dogs, ha ha. gosh. He would drink like two gallons of coffee a day and he only ate meat. That's it. He would only eat meat, allegedly. Huh. There's an interview with the founders of Norman Records one of them was in the cramps. The woman was in the cramps, and they just went, after the cramps played one of his songs, and it sort of, they went out and tried to rediscover him. They did a very good job with it, but they there's an interview with them where one of them said, Hassel doesn't sleep. He drinks about 20 cups of, you know, 
I think it was 50 cups of coffee a day. The other person says he eats more meat than any human being we've ever met. He carries around Vienna sausages in his pocket. <laughs> You'll say, what would you like for lunch, Hassel? And he'll say, meat. Any special kind? Meat. <laughs> so he'd go to restaurants and he'd order like three burgers and just eat the hamburger meat. And then he'd give away the, give away the fries. When he started kind of getting a cult following, they took him to New York to play and... He was just really disappointed that he couldn't find any hot pants to buy in New York for his girlfriends back in West Virginia. <laughs> Boy, New York is really behind the times. All the gals in, in West Virginia wear their hot pants. They're on top of the style. These New York women don't know how to dress. <laughs> I never knew that his name was Hassel and that he was he recorded hundreds and hundreds of songs just in his bedroom. He recorded all the time. There's... There are tons of things that I doubt have seen the light of day yet. He's a pretty crazy guy. He was staying at a woman, the woman that was in the cramps. He was staying at her apartment while he's in New York. And she had, at some point, ran into Andy Warhol out on the street. And she just immediately ran into a convenience store, grabbed a can of Campbell's soup, and had him autograph it. So she had it, like, up on um, a shelf. And she went to work or whatever she was doing. And when she came home... She said, did you find anything to eat? He said, yeah, I just helped myself to that that soup you had. <laughs> <laughs> so she had dug through the trash to find her now open can of Campbell's soup, which doesn't have all meat, so there's other stuff that he must have eaten. I was about to say, he must have picked through it. Uh, that's, pre- that's a pretty funny story right there. Those same people took Hassel Adkins uh, to Canada uh, for a tour, and he was already he was on parole. But when he came, when they came back, there were all these phone calls for him Everybody was really like something weird had happened. They come to find out that Hassel Atkins' cellmate, when he was in prison, got out of jail and went and scalped his own family. Like didn't kill him, just cut like their scalps off. And when he was arrested by the police, he gave his name as Hassel Atkins. So the, the police thought it was him. He had so many weird things happen to him. I'm gonna put your wind on my wall And then you can't eat no more hot dog Oh yeah <laughs> Oh yeah <laughs> In the Philippines, karaoke is a very, very dangerous business. Apparently singing is a particularly proud pastime in the country. They pride themselves on their vocal ability. And then, so karaoke machines, uh, they call them videokies, are located pretty much in all the roughest after-hour establishments throughout the Philippines. And fight, fist fights, stabbings, and shootings are super common, you know, with a bunch of drunk people. And there's very specific social norms with karaoke etiquette, like regarding laughing at performers and people singing the same song twice or people hogging the microphone. And so bad performances have been known to lead to numerous assaults and attacks on singers on stage mid-song. So videoki rage, you know, is not just in the Philippines. It's all over the country. And apparently <laughs> this guy who kept singing John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads led to a time man killing eight of his neighbors. <laughs> and then in America... A Seattle woman was thrown into a murderous rage after a particularly bad version of Cold Plays Yellow, which was sung by a karaoke patron, surprisingly not Chris Martin, which has been known to throw people into murderous rages. But anyways, in the Philippines, there's one song 
that has such hubris and arrogance that it's led to a crazy amount of killings. Okay, it's a song about covering up one's one's failures and a song about a life well lived. It's a song that's ironically the most popular song played at UK funerals. And that song, of course, is My Way, as performed by Frank Sinatra. The numbers vary a little bit, but there was a New York Times article in 2010 that estimated there's been at least 12 murders directly related to the singing of My Way. So much so that they have a phenomenon called the My Way Killings. And so in one incident in 2007, a 29-year-old karaoke singer of My Way at a San Mateo bar was shot dead as he sang the tune, allegedly by the bar's security guard. According to reports, the guard complained that the young man's rendition was off-key, and so when the victim refused to stop singing, the guard pulled out a 38 caliber pistol and just shot him dead. So, despite My Way being like a super beloved song, most bars don't offer it as an option for customers just to avoid the trouble. Bars have even gone so far as they, they employ baklas, which are effeminate men or trans women, and their whole job is just to smooth over conflicts between patrons when they're dispute about karaoke's or just regular, if they're you know, arguing over a woman or any sort of barrier arguments. They just have these people here just to kind of smooth them over. (laughs) And so there's been some sociologist debate, whether it's the prevalence of the song. It's just sung. That song is just sung so much that there's naturally more killings around it, or if it's the lyrics of the song themselves, or just the general climate of alcohol and violence and machismo that leads to my way being such a trigger for aggression. But there are other songs that are way more popular than My Way that don't have nearly the impact of violence that My Way does. So I don't know. I don't know if it's something sinister about it or because it's just kind of a triumphant fuck you type song or maybe because it's technically difficult. Sid Vicious didn't cover the other songs. That's well, that's true, too. So, yeah, regrets I've had a few, (laughs) but I've never killed anybody for singing Sinatra. So I got that going for me, I guess. I had no idea about that at all. Yeah, that's pretty crazy stuff. It's, I guess it's not the best way to end the holiday show. But. <laughs> well, we have songs to play still. All right, Joe, you got some, we got some Christmas songs? Yep, let's do it. What's that song? I'm in love. The first holiday song I'm going to play is by Vashti Bunyan, and it's called The Coldest Night of the Year. Baby, baby, it's late, and you'd better go. It's after three. Honey, please have a heart. Just look at that snow Have pity on me I can hear that north wind And the fire is oh so warm But I know you should be going But how can I send you out in that storm? Thank you. 
Bunyan with Twice As Much, who was a duo um, with the song from 1966 that was unreleased, and it's called The Coldest Night of the Year, and it ended up on a compilation called Some Things Just Stick in Your Mind, Singles and Demos, 64 to 67, which is what I, the copy that I have. Um, it's a great, great record, and I think I have the one that is on Spinny Records, I believe. I think that's the one I have. As far as I'm concerned, it's like the definitive version of that song. There are a lot of other versions. It was originally recorded by Margot Gurian. Uh, Claudine Langer has a version of it. Um, it's been covered since then a lot, but there is nothing as good as this version. And one thing I didn't know about Vashti Bunyan is she was studying at Oxford. She got into Oxford. She was expelled because she never went to classes, but she got in, which is, I don't know how tough that is, but I couldn't. I know I couldn't do it, even if it's easy. I'm sure. So... I'm sure you couldn't get in. Yeah, there's no way. I I can barely tie my own shoe. But <laughs> that's my song. There's not not a whole lot to it other than it is really one of my favorite songs of all time, whether it's a holiday-sounding tune or not. Yeah, it's such, such a great song. It's a nice alternative to Baby It's Cold Outside. All right. All right, my song is called Santa Claus Goes Modern. It's by Rod Rogers, Terry Summers, and the Librettos. Santa Claus wanted to make a change He left at home his old sleighing grains He got himself a saucer ship To deliver his Christmas gifts Ho, 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 here comes good old Santa Ho, 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 here comes good old Santa Santa is a wise old man 
snow and cold he sure can stand he lights so easy on the chimney tops and delivers gifts at every stop girls and boys he gives handy toys and mom and dad he gives a christmas joy oh ho oh, oh, ho oh, here comes good old santa oh ho oh, oh, ho here comes Good old Santa, Santa's a wise old man. The snow and the cold, he sure can stand. That old sleigh bell, he took along to chime it out. The old Christmas song, the good old bells have the same old ring. Ding-a-ling, ding-a-ling, ding-a-ling. The old reindeers. White and the old fast Christmas gate took its toll. Now Santa's left them at home to give them all time to rest and roam. Oh, yeah, here it comes, good old Santa. Oh, here comes good old Santa. He's a wise old man. The snow and the cold is sure can stand. Oh, ho, 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 here comes good old Santa. All right, that was a, a 1969 song poem, MSR song poem release. It was written by Sven Swanson, who wanted to, I assume, revise the story of Santa for a more technologically savvy era. And of course, it is a um, sung by Rod Rogers, who we talked a lot about in the uh, song poem episode. He's he's the legend of of song poem uh, music. Interestingly enough, there's two versions of the song. There's the Rod Rogers version, and there's also one by Bobby Boyle and the MSR Singers. So I don't know if the MSR company liked the song so much that they wanted to record it twice, or Sven Swanson thought that the first version wasn't good enough, so he sent it back in to get the more loungy treatment. I have no idea. They don't sound anything alike, and the lyrics are kind of a little bit... They're they're similar, but they're a little bit off. Anyways, this version's great. My favorite part is it's got the most sinister and sweet ho-ho-ho you have ever heard. I don't know. It, it makes my spine tingle, and I don't know if I'm terrified or if I just delighted. Uh, it's great. Yola Tango covered it on the 2002 EP "Merry Christmas" from Yola Tango, which is fine, but nothing as good as the original. So, really great song. What, and you have it on your MSR comp? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I've got it on the "Beat of the Traps" compilation okay. uh, uh, from '92 that I played uh, Jimmy Carter. Yep. So that uh, that compilation is fantastic. Yeah, it's already earned its money. It's got two tracks from you. Yep, already. yep. I love it. That's I have two awesome. tracks in like two episodes. So <laughs> <laughs> this one's gonna play every song off of it one by one. I would love that. All right, my second song uh, is more traditional, I guess. I don't know. It is Big Star with the song Jesus Christ, but it's the demo version.
Jesus Christ was born today. Jesus Christ was born. Jesus Christ was born today. Jesus Christ was born. Christ was born today. Jesus Christ was born. Jesus Christ was born today. Jesus Christ was born. So that was Big Star with Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a demo version, so it was Alex Chilton's solo version. The Jesus Christ is off the third album, Sister Lovers, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's kind of a semi-carol. It's a strange entry on a Dawn Christmas album, but the acoustic version makes it sound just much more Christmassy and, and something kind of approaching like a hymn. A lot of the lines, I guess, uh, Chilton directly lifted from Protestant worship songs, I think Presbyterian I read, which is kind of weird because Chilton would go this religious after Chris Bell left the band because Chris Bell was the one who was way more overtly Christian with his writing and stuff. But people kind of debate how sincere it all is, but it sounds real sweet and genuine and, you know, it's a pretty song and definitely a song you can play around anybody this time of year. I've got it on... The Big Star has so many like reissues and box sets, it's just hard to kind of keep up. I've got it on a EP, a 10-inch EP, that was part of the Thanksgiving Record Store Day in 2015, put out by Omnivore Records. It's a really cool, it's a translucent blue record, and it's got the three wise men uh, following a star. It's called the Jesus Christ EP. It's it's a nice song. It's uh, And the only other weird thing I saw about the song is the Monkees covered it on their recent Christmas album called Christmas Party. So, yeah, if you want to hear the boys doing their thing again there are more there are now more monkeys than beetles <laughs> have been for a while yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there's twice as many all right my last song is by a band called the pink mountain tops and the song is called holiday Yeah. Hey. 
Okay, that was the Pink Mountaintops with a song called Holiday from their 2009 album Outside Love on Jag Jaguar Records. If you don't know the Pink Mountaintops at all, which which you may not, the main person in the band is Stephen McBean, who is also the main person in Black Mountain, kind of one of the modern psych bands that's very good, I think, as well, or at least they, they were for their first few albums. This is the Pink Mountaintops' third album. What was the name of the other band? Uh, Black Mountain. And they're Pink Mountaintops and Black Mountain. He needs to work on his band naming. Stephen McBean is a Canadian. Um, Black Mountain, I believe, was one of his first bands, if not his first band. He's got another one called Lightning Bolt, maybe. He's got a few different bands. But Black Mountain is the big one. The Fuchsia, Fuchsia Plateaus. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. He's got, yeah, he's got maroon speed bumps. <laughs> Uh, he's a really good artist and songwriter, and this one, most of this album has a woman singing. It has contributions from people that were are in Destroyer and Godspeed You Black Emperor. It's a really good album. It's just a from start to finish. It does have some of the, the psych that Black Mountain would have that they've always had, but it's not quite as hard. It's much easier to listen to, and their stuff is very easy to listen to as it is anyway. So just kind of a nice, pretty album. You've played that album for me a couple times. I think we've listened to it in your basement. It's a it's really good album. I think uh, those four decent options to listen to some, uh, some different sort of music around Christmas. I know we always need a, a little refresher, or else you're going to be listening to uh, Silver Bells all month long. They're... There are some other some other good holiday albums that maybe people don't know as well. The old 97s put out a holiday album this year, and side one of that album is all original songs, uh-huh. and side two are, is covers. Two or three of the originals are perfect. Like, they're great songs. Rhett Miller is just a, a wonderful lyricist, and the band plays really well together with those lyrics. They make up some great music. Are they still—are the old 97s still pretty good? I haven't listened to a lot of their new stuff. I, you know, I loved a lot of their old stuff. I just haven't. Yeah, they are. They're not. Um, I don't think they're as good, or I don't like their stuff as much as I like the Too Far to Care. But I, that could just be because I heard it at exactly the right time for yeah. me to to really digest an album. Any other good Christmas albums that people may not know of? Yeah, Bobby Timmons has one called Holiday Soul, and it's got amazing songs on it. They're all just sort of traditional Christmas kind of songs. It was released originally in 1964. If you ever do want to listen to him, and everybody should, he has two absolutely stellar albums that are as good as basically any other jazz album I've ever heard, and one is called This Here is Bobby Timmons, and the other is called Soul Time. They're both from. They're both released in 1960 on Riverside, and one of them, Soul Time, is it's him and Blue Mitchell on trumpet and Art Blakey on drums and Sam Jones on bass. It's a great, great quartet. So, sounds good. We mentioned the Fahey episode, but uh, a new possibility is great. Christmas music, and that's a record you can find. Probably one of the easiest Fahey to find. Actually, there's a few extra extra choices. I was talking about John Denver causing uh, eight people to get murdered earlier, but his uh, album with the Muppets is a pretty good one if you got kids. If if you don't know it, I think most people my age probably know it, or maybe it's just me since I listened to it so much when I was growing up. But uh, it's uh, pretty pretty fun all the way around, and the kids seem to really enjoy it. All right, I guess we should probably wrap it up here. We uh, thank you for listening. With uh, this is our first full year, we've made it through. We're 
we're over 40 episodes. So, uh, and this is a fun one for us. I think we needed a one where we could just kind of have fun with it. So we appreciate you going with our whims as always, please make sure you're, you're supporting artists and record labels and, and going out and buying music. You know, we, we uh, do this to help bring attention to people and help out record stores and, and musicians and record labels uh, who deserve your money. And if you guys have any other anecdotes for from like crazy weirdo fringe outsider singers or just good stories, put them on Facebook. Tell us about them. Uh, I love reading those things. Anything I can read about fun anecdotes from people in music, I, I can't get enough of it. What sort of social media we got these days? It's it's basically the same. We've got a <laughs> got a Twitter feed that isn't being updated as much as it was before. I don't I've been a lot busier with uh, my day job, so it's been harder to do. Wait, you have another job? We do update it, uh, and we will try to update it more. We have a Facebook page. We have an email address as well. Uh, highway Hi-Fi podcast at gmail.com. If you want to write a review for us, that would be great. But you know what? We're doing pretty well. If you can just tell somebody, that's all we... We just want to have some more people enjoying this. Absolutely. All right. Well, we hope you have a wonderful holidays. And uh, we're going to be surfing those buttholes pretty soon, I think. I think so. Yeah. Our next our next few episodes are going to be pretty, pretty fun. I'm very excited about this. The next one, especially. Yeah, me too. All right. Happy holidays. And we'll talk to you later. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.